If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Whether you're making a delicious family meal or a post-workout snack, choose the farm-fresh taste of Eggland's Best Eggs. Only Eggland's Best Hens are fed their proprietary all-vegetarian feed. That's what makes their eggs more nutritious. With 10 times more vitamin E, 25% less saturated fat, and 6 times more vitamin D compared to ordinary eggs. Eggland's Best. Better taste, better nutrition, better eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com to learn more. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts. It has been analyzed by the archaeologists who dug it up and they have discovered that it still contains traces of genuine Tudor piss. That was Lucy Worsley on one of the more unusual items on show at Hampton Court Palace. I think what the First World War does is it, it, you know, the compass is thrown away, the compass of world history is thrown away. And that was Charles Emerson on the fateful year of 1913. and welcome to the History Extra podcast. My name is Robert Attar and I'm the editor of BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. You can find it in all good news agents and on subscription. Visit historyextra.com forward slash subscribe for subscription deals. And we also have digital editions available for the iPad, the Kindle, the Kindle Fire and Google Play. For details of our digital formats, including price, content and availability, head to historyextra.com forward slash digital. Queen Victoria's 50-inch drawers, George IV's enormous breeches and the food-stained clothes of George III have all featured in a recent BBC series on Britain's monarchs, presented by Lucy Worsley. Our section editor, Charlotte Hodgman, caught up with Lucy recently to find out what studying these and other personal items 
can tell us about the lives of the monarchs who owned them. So Lucy, before we look at some of the individual monarchs that you've studied, can you tell us a little bit about the Royal Ceremonial Dress Collection? What, what sort of treasures does it hold? Well, the Royal Ceremonial Dress Collection has got about three and a half thousand different items in it. And some of it is clothing that's belonged to kings and queens. So our oldest item is a leather jerkin that belonged to Charles I. It's from the 17th century. Um, But other items are clothes that people wore at court. Because if you were a member of the court, if you if you attended the king or the queen in one of the palaces, you often had to wear a kind of peculiar uniform. Um, in the 19th century, this got, gets very codified. It really is very similar to a military uniform. But earlier on on that, there were all sorts of rules and regulations that people sort of informally followed. So the collection goes from their swords, their shoes, their epaulets, their wigs, their amazing huge sort of ball gown type dresses. And... Then there's the sort of, you know, the best bits, the ones that we're really excited about are the ones that were worn by actual kings and queens themselves. And what do you think we can learn from looking at kings and queens as, as ordinary human beings who, who maybe suffered from the same sort of ailments that, that we all do? Well, the reason I've always been interested in kings and queens is, is not because they're these very powerful figures at the top of society. It's, it's because they're actually the best documented people alive in their age because they're so well recorded they are the people living at any time in well um, centuries gone by that we know the most about very often um and so i i like to think of them as sort of representatives of of their um of their generation and i think it's quite um revealing somehow uh to think of them as um as as normal people is it is quite surprising it's quite if you um if you look at someone like henry the eighth you 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 can confuse them with his portraits you think that he's this sort of iconic godlike all-powerful figure as represented by holbein and it's quite easy to forget that underneath all of that was a real human being who ate and slept and um got ill and had worries felt lonely um all the things that normal people do as well. So um, I've always quite enjoyed sort of trying to get under their skin and bring them to life a bit, but also to see how how they fitted into the bigger picture, really. And one particularly sad example that you, you looked at in your recent series was that of Queen Anne, who, who lost all of her 17 children um, and actually died without an heir. How do you think her contemporaries would have viewed you know, this type of, of thing that happened to her? It's terribly sad about Queen Anne, poor Queen Anne with the the 17 um, pregnancies and one lot were twins actually and none none of these children lived past the age of 11. So there are accounts of of Anne and her husband's grieving for this. It's it's very moving to read about how they they responded to this heartbreaking loss of child after child. Um, At one point, Anne was described as being sick with grief, poor woman. And um, it is quite interesting to speculate how contemporaries would have reacted to it, because in one sense, this was really bad news because um, she'd failed in what was then considered to be the the, the basic fundamental duty of the monarch, which was to um, uh, ensure a smooth succession by having children. And uh, the Stuart, the Protestant part of the Stuart line would stutter to a stop with her. Um, obviously, some of the people who were close to her felt pity for her. We've got the survival of these um, eyewitness descriptions of her of her grieving. And then again, it's interesting to speculate what people thought might have been her problem. 
And certainly the contemporary medical view was that her body was too wet because they still believed in the humoral concept of medicine where people were sort of classified to the different um, levels of moistness, the levels of heat in their bodies. And, and Queen Anne was a rather large lady. She definitely it w was what we would consider to be obese today. So in our program, the expert that I spoke to, her conclusion was um, this, this was the major difficulty. And today, if Queen Anne went to a doctor with her sort of gynecological record, she would have probably been advised to lose weight. Contemporaries saw that as her being too wet. For them, um, the fatness uh, equated to wetness. So, I mean, do we have any idea or perhaps was there actually anything medically wrong with her that, that caused these children to die? I mean, someone, like you say, did live past infancy. Well, there are lots of different explanations that have been posited. Um, Retrodiagnosis is what it's called. Some people say she had the condition called lupus. Others speculate that it was rhesus negativity, so that was some sort of incompatibility between her and her husband, George of Denmark. But I can't really say for definite which one or the other it might have been. Um, and another very interesting character that you look at in the series and also in the feature was was George IV, who is sort of famously portrayed as a rather overweight and, and comical figure in, in caricatures of his day. Um, did you get the same impression of him looking at his clothes and the, the rather large trousers that you were, you were looking oh. at? <laughs> George IV. It's so easy to laugh at George yeah. IV, particularly when you see his enormous trousers with the 54-inch <laughs> inch waist. But at the same time, I feel a bit guilty about doing that because he, 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 he seems to me to be a man in pain, a, a man who suffers from all sorts of addictions and compulsions, eating too much, drinking too much, became reliant on laudanum or opium dissolved in alcohol later on in his life. And I think that even George IV's strongest supporters would say that he wasn't really cut out to be a leader of the nation. He did have strengths. He was incredibly stylish. He was very charismatic. Um, in the history of art, he's a terribly important figure. Um, he, he created an awful lot that we consider to be the visual brand of Britain today. Uh, Jane Austen dresses, tea parties, elegance, the skyline of Windsor Castle, Regent Street, all of these things that are very significant and important. But in terms of the sort of nitty gritty, hardcore business of running the country, he didn't really seem to engage with it terribly well. He became reclusive towards the latter end of his life. And it's very easy to say, oh, he was useless, should never have been king. But, you know, it's actually quite tragic for him that he had to be king. And how do you think royal illnesses um, and sort of images like George IV helped destroy the image of the monarchy as, as perhaps a godly figure? I, I think there's a sort of counterintuitive answer to that. You would think looking at these people sort of destroys the glamour. I mean, they say don't let in the daylight and don't let the daylight into the magic. Royalty needs to maintain its mystique. But actually, I think you can make the argument that the weaknesses, the illnesses, the foibles of kings and queens can strengthen the institution because it means that, you know, clearly the institution is going to throw up wild cards. Um, the hereditary monarchy is going to, just through genetics, it's going to throw up um, people who, who are not the best equipped for the job in terms of brains or character or leadership skills or whatever. So the institution itself has to be strong enough to, to manage that, to survive despite the occasional one who isn't very good. 
So over, over time as well with the British monarchy, we can see a gradual decline in its powers alongside the rise of the powers of parliament. Those two things sort of plot opposing lines on the graph, if you like. But if you look at some of the continental monarchies where they retained more of their power for longer, they came a cropper because a sort of head of pressure built up and their people thought, right, we need to overthrow the king or queen. We, we can't be doing with the monarchy anymore. In Britain, of course, this happened in the 17th century, but not fatally, not forever. The monarchy came back on with the, with the restoration. And from that point onwards, for the following centuries, the British monarchy, by and large, played its hand quite well. It continued in business by not being too powerful, not worth being overthrowing, if you like. So do you think in some ways having had unhealthy kings and queens was actually a positive thing for the the British monarchy? Well, when a king or queen is ill and retires from public life, one thing that can happen that happens very often is that people realise they miss them. And they experience um, rivalries, other people putting themselves forward for power. Instability enters the picture. So when George III disappeared for his episodes of illness, for example, everybody was awfully glad when he came back again because they realized what the alternative was. It was a whole lot of arguing. Possibly his son, um, the Prince of Wales, who's very much associated with the opposition to the government. And and the other thing that that kings and queens do, which is helpful, is that they act as a sort of mirror to... um, the the family life of of individual members of the nation. So to watch them going through their life cycle of births, deaths and marriages is is reassuring. It's a sort of, um, it represents stability and and continuity. And it gives you a sense that you're part of something bigger than just your own particular family, I suppose. So it's, it's, it's not essential that they all absolutely all the time live up to the job description, which in medieval times was to be male, <laughs> very importantly. <laughs> it was to be the son of the king who'd gone before you. Um, it was to be appointed by God. A lot of people start to question that as time goes on, obviously. And also able to lead your troops in person on the battlefield. Well, if you look at the, um, the later kings and queens, they don't meet those criteria, but it doesn't matter. Was that the same for, for queens like Queen Victoria, who retired from public life after the death of Albert? Did, did people have that sort of feeling? Did they miss her when she went? Yes. In, in the 1870s, when Queen Victoria goes into her sort of long, secluded period of mourning, it, republicanism does get... I would say, as strong as it does at any point since the 17th century. There really is a feeling that there's no point in having this queen if we can't see her. What's she getting up to? And when she does sort of come back onto the scene with her her later jubilees, the golden and the diamond, she's welcomed with open arms. People are terribly glad to see her by then. And another sort of secret of success of of, of kingship or queenship is just to do it for a really long time. (laughs) We see this with George III and with Victoria and with Elizabeth II. You get credit towards the end of a really long late reign just for having kept it up for so long and do you think monarchs felt the need to make up for their physical and mental shortcomings in in other areas of their rule yes you could definitely compensate for um you know in many ways it's quite good to show a human side to yourself so um charles ii who has um as as we all know a very well publicized weakness for wine women and song um there was a bit of a feeling at the time that, whoa, you're, you're a cheeky chappy. We quite like you. So people used to call him old Roly and that sort of thing in a sort of um, fond, affectionate, joshing sort of a way. And William III, of course, was he wasn't the healthiest of, of monarchs. Um, do you think he was able to make up for that in, in other ways? I think William III is a, a really underestimated 
king. And he, he's, he's, he's so divisive today because um, Catholics are not keen on him. Uh, people from other parts of the British Isles than England are not keen on him. Um, the English themselves weren't that keen on him because he was Dutch. That was a bit of a problem that he had to overcome. And he definitely didn't have a sort of hearty, merry, welcoming personality. And yet, he was an incredibly shrewd politician. And he managed to get, negotiate for himself and his family a very good and a very lasting settlement, uh, which, as I was saying, it, it, was, it was a negotiated settlement where the monarchy was established. It had certain powers, but not too many powers. And they have pretty much continued from then till the present day. Another example you look at that was I found quite fascinating was, was George III. Was he actually really mad as, as people classed him at the time? Well, for many years, it, it's been quite sort of fashionable uh, amongst historians to say, no, 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 the king wasn't mad, as everybody in the 18th century would have called it. Uh, he had the physical illness porphyria and um, I must admit, if you go to Kew Palace, which is one of the properties that Historic Royal Palaces looks after, all the interpretation there will say he had porphyria, because it, it did seem to be a, a very convincing explanation. If you look at some of the symptoms that he had, like like blue urine, this is um, porphyria. The word itself, the, the name itself comes from the Greek word for um, purple. And um, a good case was built for that. But to my mind, that has been severely challenged. No, no, I believe it has been overturned, actually, by this research project that's going on at St. George's Hospital in uh, Tooting at the moment. And what they have done is to analyse thousands of George's handwritten letters. And they fed them all into this um, computer programme that analyses things like sentence structure and vocabulary. And what they've been able to chart is that during the episodes when he was ill, or what contemporaries called us mad, um, his, his writing became sort of explosively creative, repetitive, um, very verbose. And actually, this, this fits in with, with um, descriptions of his behavior. He was described as having an incessant loquacity, for example, by doctors. They described him talking until the foam ran out of his mouth. And all of this does seem to fit in with... Um, with, with what happens with people with psychiatric illnesses today experiencing the manic phase of a mood disorder. So if you've got a, um, a, a mood disorder, you may well be very, very sad, pathologically sad, the depressive state. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you can be euphoric, you can be manic, you can have sort of dangerous levels of happiness, if you like. And people who are in that sort of condition, their own handwriting, even to this day, I'm told, um, is, is just like George's, really quite characteristically different from how, how they would express themselves on paper at other times. I found that very convincing. Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, and how, was he, how was he handled at the time during these episodes? Oh, poor George. It, it's, it's quite heartbreaking when you, when you read all the things that his doctors did to him, like cupping him and treating him with weird stuff and putting him into his straight jacket. And um, this is all covered in the film The Madness of King George by, and the stage play by, by Alan, Alan Bennett. And although he, he was placed um, under sort of recuperative conditions at Kew Palace, quietly out of the public eye, um, allowed to walk in the gardens and things. Um, I would say that he, he, he sort of got better by himself. It wasn't as if they cured him. It was just that it, it sort of naturally cured itself, the condition. 
And would he have had any, had any say in his, his treatment? Um, you say that you know, he was sort of manhandling the clothes and he was fed and things like that. Um, how much control did he have over his own situation? Well, I guess it was quite tricky because this was the king. You don't put the king in a straitjacket. But um, as he got iller and iller, certain precautions were taken for his own good. So one of the things that's on display at Kew Palace at the moment is, um, oh, it's, it's quite heartbreaking. It's the cup with the spout that was used to feed him when he was too ill to do it for himself. Um, and what, I mean, that sounds quite an unusual item to, to come across in, in the collection. Are there any other items that you, that you found that kind of surprised you? Well, because, because kings and queens are such valuable, significant, important people in the eyes of the world, you do get quite a lot of their sort of personal artifacts surviving, um, which, is, which is just brilliant because some, something as intimate as that, the cup that was used to feed him in his illness, is, it just gives you a bit of a shiver to see something like that. Um, one item which, well, we can't prove it was Henry VIII's uh, clothes. We can't prove that it was Henry VIII's, but at Hampton Court, there is a... Um, what the, what the Tudors called a piss pot, a chamber pot, uh, that's always been a very popular item on display because it has been analysed by the archaeologists who dug it up and they have discovered that it still contains traces of genuine Tudor piss in it. Does it? It's yeah. extraordinary. So kids mm. get wild to see this. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> that's such a sort of direct connection to the past. I, I have to tell you, you can't smell it. You can hardly see it. There's just sort of a bit of a, a sediment at the bottom. Um, but, oh, I do, I do like a, a bodily fluid from history, <laughs> I do. <laughs> um, and whose stories moved you in particular and, and why? Um... Do you know, I would say, after having studied a lot of these historical monarchs, that there isn't a single one of them that I don't feel quite sorry for because of the pressures of the job. So even Henry VIII, you'd think, wow, what has he got to worry about? Surely he's a, an enviable character. He can do what he likes. He can break with Rome. He can run through all of these women like a combine harvester. But actually, I think it's more psychologically accurate to see him as a man who felt that he was under enormous pressure. And actually, he was a very romantic man. The reason he had six wives is not because he wanted to run through a whole lot of women. Actually, he would have preferred to, to settle down, to live with, to love just one woman if she could have given him the one thing that he wanted but had great difficulty in getting um, a son and heir to come after him. So even, even the monster... I think we can feel a little bit of pity for. And, and do you think it was harder to be an unhealthy monarch in the medieval era when the risk of being overthrown was probably greater or when you had an increasingly powerful parliament that was sort of lurking in the wings waiting to step in and take control? I do, I do believe that physical strength, physical prowess becomes less important as, as time goes on. If you were a medieval monarch, uh, if you watch Game of Thrones, you'll know this. It was very important to be physically powerful, able to, um, you know, literally kill your enemies, literally lead your troops. But with civilization, this becomes less and less important. The end of the Wars of the Roses seems to me to be the key turning point. And if you look at the Tudors themselves, Henry the Henry VIII, um, is this sort of charismatic, strong, warlike person at the beginning of his life. But by the end, he's physically very weak, travels in a wheelchair, ulcer on his leg, has become enormously fat. And then he's succeeded by a whole series of people who 
in the terms of the day, have something physically wrong with them. So the next heir is this little boy, Edward. Then we get Mary. She's a woman. That's not, the, that's not correct. Then we get Elizabeth, who's kind of even worse because she's a woman who refuses to get married and have children. Then we have James I, who is, in our terms, quite openly bisexual. And yet all of these, all of these later Tudors, Tudors and um, the first of the Stuarts, they do a pretty good job. They all die peacefully in their beds. The throne passes from one to another. It's actually, it's really, it's really funny and um, intriguing and counterintuitive, this. When you get to Charles I, he looks like he ought to be really good on paper. He's, he's married. He's got children. He inherited the throne from his father. Um, he, he appears to have every advantage, but he's the one who messes it up. That was Charlotte Hodgman talking to Lucy Worsley. Lucy Worsley is Chief Curator at Historic Royal Palaces and presenter of the recent BBC series Fit to Rule, How Royal Illness Changed History. Lucy discusses five of the items she studied at the Royal Ceremonial Dress Collection in the May issue of BBC History magazine, which is out now. Historic Royal Palaces is an independent charity that looks after the Tower of London, Hampton Court Palace, the Banqueting House... Kensington Palace and Kew Palace. You can find out more about them at hrp.org.uk. Before our second interview, I'd like to quickly mention that tickets are now on sale for our History Weekend Festival. It's taking place in the historic Wiltshire town of Malmesbury from the 25th to 27th of October and will include talks from some of Britain's leading historians, including Max Hastings, Michael Wood, Dan Snow, Susanna Lipscomb, Dominic Sambrook and Kate Williams. For the full lineup and ticket information, please visit historyweekend.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. Charles Emerson is the author of a new book exploring the diverse stories of cities around the world in 1913. He spoke to our book's editor, Matt Elton, about the realities of life a century ago and about how much of a shock the outbreak of the First World War really was. How did you go about writing such a broad history of an entire year across the globe? Well, I thought it was very important to write a, a, a global history because there are so many histories of this period which really focus on Britain or which focus on Europe, they focus on the chancelleries and the foreign ministries, etc. So I did want to write a global history, which is obviously quite a challenge. Yes, yes. Um, but, of course, 
when you're writing about just a year, you can focus a little bit on various sources where they actually cover the whole year in different places. So newspapers sure. mm. uh, were very, very important. Uh, and I was able to look at newspapers for pretty much all of the cities um, that I looked at uh, in the book. I mean, there were some which were more difficult to look at. Sure. Yes. But newspapers were very important. And then, of course, you have, you have diaries. Um, there are a number of people traveling around the world who set down their thoughts at that time. A fantastic character called Mr. Uh, Ramanujaswamy, who wrote about London around that time. Sergei Prokofiev, the Russian composer, was traveling around Europe with his mum uh, in 1913 and sort of had, he wrote, you know, funny things about London where he couldn't really get around and the only words he knew were jockey club and water closet um, and, and Paris. And, and, then, and then, of course, um, beyond that, you have the travel guides themselves. Mm. Um, so I used quite a lot of Bideckers. Sure. Okay. Uh, and then other guides in other languages for different cities. One of the things I looked at when I was doing research for the book was a film of Melbourne in 1910, I think it was, called Marvellous Melbourne. And the film, basically, that there's, a, there's a camera attached to the front of a tram and the tram runs through the streets of Melbourne. It's completely recognisable where you are. I mean, the city layout has not changed. You know, you can recognise buildings and churches. It's, it's quite familiar, if you've ever been to Melbourne, of course. Um... And at one point in, the, in that film, there's a, uh, a boy with a you know, cloth cap and, and short trousers who sort of runs in front of the camera and kind of points at it and, and laughs a bit and points it out to his mates. Uh, and say he's eight or nine years old in 1910. Well, my grandfather was eight or nine years old at that time. And so I, I can't help but look at that film and think, look, I know it's not my grandfather, but, you know, it... it you know, it could be. And I, I think that that is something very important about 1913. It's 100 years, years ago. 100 years seems like a long period of time. But actually, um, a very large number of people in Britain will have met somebody who was alive in 1913, perhaps when they were very young. Um, I just heard on the radio this morning about uh, the oldest lady in the world who's Japanese, who's 116, born in 1897. Um, so there are still people around who, even now, there are still people around who... Uh, you know, have a dim memory of 1913. It's not that long ago. Um, you know, it's it's a few generations, and the world that we live in is, in many respects, the you know the creation of the of, is created by was created at that time. Okay, fantastic. And how did you choose which cities to focus on? That took a very very long time. Um, I mean, obviously, I wanted to make sure that I had a, a balance between continents, between parts of the world. Um, you know, the European capital cities, they were bound, they had to be in, really. Yeah. Um, so beyond them, beyond the sort of London, Paris, Vienna, St. Petersburg, etc., uh, then it was a little bit more difficult to decide which ones to, to go for. Mm-hmm. But what I really looked for were cities that had, that were unexpected in some cases. So I think Winnipeg was a fairly unexpected city. Um, cities which had particular stories around them. So Durban was a good example of that. And then cities which allowed me to illuminate a wider theme. So, for example, Detroit. Um, I mean, Detroit probably would have gone in anyway because you've got Henry Ford in Detroit. You've got the first, um, not the first Model T, but the first um, production line sort of cranking into action in 1913. But that writing about that city also allowed me to talk about a broader theme of the birth of American consumerism, yeah. which is a very, very important theme in American history around that time. Were there any cities that you think were particularly um, instructive in telling us about the year? 
Well, I think there were some stories within cities and some accounts within cities which were particularly um, attractive to me. Okay. Um, I remember coming across um, the uh, diary of Dmitry Smirnov, who was a Siberian priest who went to St. Petersburg in 1913 for the tercentenary of the Romanov dynasty. And he wrote this wonderfully emotional account of him standing in the cathedral in St. Petersburg and awaiting the arrival of the Tsar to celebrate 300 years of the, the dynasty being on the throne and being terribly moved. And you really were brought by that text right into the cathedral on that day. Um, of course, one couldn't include all of the, you know, one couldn't include at great length excerpts from all of these diaries, but there, there were just some accounts that, that really made you feel the immediacy of the moment. And that was something which I very much wanted to get across in the book as a whole, the idea that although we now look at 1913 very much through the lens of the First World War, um, you know, we know what happens in this story. Um, at the time in 1913, there were all these different narratives and there was a sense of openness about the future, sometimes optimistic, sometimes not. But I wanted to get very much that, that immediacy of the time and of the place. Um, and I hope I get that across in the book. Mm, definitely, yes. Um Okay, so there's a whole range of different stories going on, which I think it would be interesting to kind of um, draw out, I suppose. Yeah. Um, one is that um, kind of new developments in um, kind of technology and industry um, had shaped quite a lot of people's lives in quite a major way. Um, do you think there's any places in the world in which this was particularly um, strong? Well, I suppose America. Uh, you know, America was by far the most um, technologically advanced part of the world. But even in America, you know, you, 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 by 1913, you haven't yet had a transcontinental telephone call, for example. Um, the fastest way to get from New York to Los Angeles is still by train, uh, obviously. And that, but that takes less time uh, than, than, sorry, it takes more time than getting from New York to London by, by, by fast ship. So you have a world which, on the one hand, is, is more interconnected than it's ever been through telegraph, railway, steamships, refrigerated ships, shipping meat around the world, all this kind of thing. Um, but at the same time, geography still matters. Uh, and there are parts of the world which I, I talk about which are more distant. They're kind of off the, the main circuit of, of globalization, places like, uh, places like Tehran or places like Jerusalem as well. These are places which are a little bit more, a little bit more hidden away. So you think that um, life was very much different in different parts of the world in a way that it isn't today? No, I wouldn't say that life was more different in different parts of the world than it is today. Um, I think that for the, in Europe certainly, in, in Britain certainly, um, but in lots of different parts of the world, there was a, a, an idea of the global which is emerging around this time. Um, if I think of my grandparents, for example, who were um, all alive in 1913, uh, most of them in Australia, you know, their vision was not really confined to... Um, you know, their city or the state of Victoria, their vision was very much a worldwide vision based on the British Empire. You know, their capital city wasn't Melbourne, their capital city was, was London. Uh, and you do have tremendous flows of money and ideas and people around this time. I mean, for example, one statistic which I found really very surprising was the fact that in 1913, 400,000 people uh, emigrated to Canada. That is the highest figure for Canada ever. Wow. Um, and this is, you know, to a population of, you know, four or five million, I think. Um, so, you know, the, the velocity of people and ideas in 1913 is incredibly high. Often, of course, people don't need to travel with passports. I mean, within Europe, um, 
you know, if you're if you if you were a German traveling from Lübeck or Hamburg to um, to Britain in 1913, you didn't need to show a passport. I mean, there's two places that you mentioned um, that I think are particularly interesting to draw out, and one is London, um, which appears both at the start and at the end of the book. Was there a reason why you looped back to that particular place? Yes, absolutely. I mean, well, for two reasons, really. Um, one reason is just the sheer importance of London in 1913. It's, it's the biggest city in the world. It's the world's biggest port, although it's overtaken by New York in 1913. Um, it's, of course, capital of a worldwide empire. It's the centre of global finance. So it's, it's a very, very important city in its own right. It also happens to be my home city, so obviously I'm a little bit biased. Um, but the other thing I very much wanted to get across the book was the sense of the sense of travel, the sense of moving from one place to another. And so having London at the very beginning and then looping back to London at the end made sense. I suppose there's also a, a third reason, which is that you could look at London in 1913 two ways. You can view this being sort of the midday of the British Empire, you know, the height of pomp and circumstance, you know, marching bands in Hyde Park. But you can also, you also sense in London at that time, perhaps the beginnings of decadence, the beginnings of decline. There are question marks around the British Empire and how it's going to evolve in the future. And there are, British mar- there are question marks within the United Kingdom. Um, you know, you've got a question of home rule in Ireland, the question of whether that will lead to some kind of civil war in Ireland. Um, you have um, radical suffragettes um, putting a bomb under the throne of the uh, Bishop of London in St Paul's Cathedral. Um, so you do have question marks around around Britain at that time as well. And the best way of sort of showing that duality was to have, in a sense, London divided into two bits. There's quite an interesting quote in the book where you talk about the difference between someone's experience of living in L.A. and what was advertised as being the case in that city. Um, how interesting a case study is Los Angeles? Well, I mean, the, 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 that is something you find in, in lots of frontier cities, um, you find you know, in these boosterish places where it's considered very important that the city gets a good press internationally, that immigrants are attracted, that new people are attracted to come into the place, which of course keeps wages down, which is exactly what uh, owners of businesses, of course, uh, want, and indeed, of course, allows business to thrive in some of these places. Um, and that's that's all bound up with the sense that you know the future is limitless. Um, um, so yes, there is this there is this um, tendency towards um, painting very very dramatic visions of the future to make it so. Maybe if you paint a future as dramatic as it could be, then that's what the future will turn out to be. Uh, and that's that's certainly clear in places like well Winnipeg, but also I think in in uh, in LA. Um, and then you have the beginnings of um, consumer societies. I mean one. One source which I found um, absolutely fan- fantastic for the United States in 1913 was um, the Sears catalogue for 1913, and you know it's it's several hundred pages long. I found this in a in a, in, a, in an archive in in uh, in Detroit, the Henry Ford archive, and it, you know it, it's it's amazing. You couldn't believe there are so many different types of lawn mower, or you know there are 30 different types of pipe. Uh, or and because people in 1913 smoked pipes more than they smoked cigarettes uh, in America, 
um, you've got, you know, you've got all these different kinds of flags. You've got, um, you know, uh, mass-produced paintings. Um, you've got you've got car engines for sale through the Sears catalogue. Um, you've got all kinds of stuff. Uh, and 1913 is the is the inception of the uh, of the. Um, the parcel post system in the United States as well. So you, you have you have a society that is beginning to grow very wealthy, but also where mass production, which Henry Ford is really championing, uh, has to be allied with mass consumption because you can't have mass production without mass consumption, and you can't really have mass consumption without mass production. Um, so there is a special American economic model um, which is arising at this time. Uh, and American businesses, of course, are, are, are quite well known in, in Europe as well. American products are appearing on on uh, on British dining tables uh, and on British streets. Um, so you do have a sense of the United States not yet as a as a great political power, um, but certainly a, a great economic power and a, and a power that is creating a new idea of um, the relationship of citizen society. The citizen is now a consumer. The other place is Winnipeg, which um, is interesting in terms of, um, I suppose, global movements of people. Um, yes. There's a couple of points in the book where there's concerns expressed in newspapers about immigration and the impact that's going to have on kind of societies. Um, how much do you think this was a concern? Well, Winnipeg's a very interesting place. I mean, people completely forget about Winnipeg now. It's hardly on anyone's tourist itineraries, or not very many people's tourist, uh, tourist itineraries. But... You know, in 1913, it was it was the boomtown of the British Empire. And if you go to Winnipeg now, as I have been, then you'll see lots of you know, huge buildings, very very grand buildings, which were built around 1913, um, because Winnipeggers truly believed that their city, in the middle of Manitoba, on the plains of Canada, was going to be one of the great cities of the 20th century. Uh, and I and. I, and of course, there are there are some cities in the book, you know, London, Paris, Vienna, which are fairly familiar to us. But I also wanted to talk about some cities, Winnipeg and Buenos Aires as well, which were really considered to be cities of the future in 1913, and yet things didn't pan out quite the way one might have expected. But I think your point about um, immigration is, is is a very key one because that is, that is a theme which comes up um, across the book. In I mentioned that Canada had its highest number of uh, immigrants ever in 1913. But of course, you've also got tremendous flows of migration um, to Latin America, to Buenos Aires, um, some of it seasonal. Um, you've also got tremendous flows of migration around the Indian Ocean uh, and around Southeast Asia. So you mentioned there's kind of obviously Asia. Um, yes. And there's been a lot written recently about some kind of shift in global politics and economics towards the East. Mm. Do we get any sense of that starting at this point? You know, th there is a sense in 1913 that maybe the East is beginning to, to wake up. Okay. Um, you have Japan that by 1913 is a British ally. You know, the British tend to not like making geopolitical alliances with other countries, but they've made one with Japan. Japan, a country that, you know, 20 or 30 years previously was really, um, you know, a country coming out of the the Dark Ages, um, technologically speaking. Um, so Japan has transformed itself in a very, very short space of time, and by 1913 it is a, uh, a, a quite modern state, 
um, with quite a powerful navy, which is the main reason why the British are so keen to have an alliance with the Japanese. And then in China, you've got a lot of things happening in China. You know, for um, centuries, for millennia, uh, there have been a series of imperial dynasties in China. And by 1913, um, these have gone. There's been a revolution. Um, there are elections at the end of 1912, beginning of 1913. Um, there is a parliament um, which meets in Peking in 1913. And so you, 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 you get a sense that, that things, are, things are shifting in, in Asia as well, that the, the imperial age um, is changing as well. So what can we learn about race in the period? Um, you know, one thing which comes, comes through the book and is very, very important is that of race. And this was something which I guess I wasn't surprised by. Um, but nonetheless, it was something that, that one had to sort of read very, very carefully to actually understand what was going on here. Uh, race and, of course, empire and, and imperialism. And on the, on the imperial side, one of the things which I found which was interesting was, although there's a tendency now to think of empire in terms of the colonizers and the colonized. It's a very sort of binary view. Um, actually, what you found was, um, you know, levels of engagement with empire, participation in empire. So perhaps it was something a little bit more complicated um, than just that, just that binary view. And similarly, um, on issues of race, um, you know, 1913 is the year where the Native Land Act is passed in South Africa. It's also... Uh, the year when Gandhi is in, is in South Africa uh, militating for the rights of the Indian community of South Africa. But, you know, it's very much he's militating for the rights of the Indian community. He doesn't want there to be any confusion between the Indian community in South Africa and the black community, in South, the black indigenous community in South Africa. So, there, there, you know, race is, 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 is a complex issue. This, is, this, I have to say, is, is a recurring theme in 20th century Australian history. I mean, really the whole way through. The idea is very much that Australia is... That the birthright of the white Australian is for Australia to remain white, uh, and that is a, you know, whether you like it or not, that that's that's a theme which comes through in in the sources at that time, uh, and the fear of invasion from uh, from the north. This idea that Australia is kind of strung out at the edge of the British world, and that as Japan grows in power, uh, as China wakes up. Um, what will happen to, to, to white Australia. So there is that kind of very, very defensive, um, racist uh, posture, which is, which is, I think, there. To what extent do you think if someone was to kind of travel back in time 100 years from today, um, would they experience gender relations being in any way similar? Well, I think it would depend very much on where you were. Um, you know, obviously in, in Britain at this time, you, you've got the suffragette movement um, campaigning for, for votes for women pretty unsuccessfully. Um, and Britain is in many respects far ahead of most other parts of Europe, most other parts of the world. Um, it's, it's not ahead of, ironically, I suppose, it's not ahead of places like Australia or New Zealand where actually women do have uh, much more political power. Um, so, you know, I think that gender relations uh, in 1913 were certainly, you know, more skewed towards men uh, than they were towards women. And some, you know, I came across in, um, in one of the newspapers an account of a meeting of uh, the International Congress of Women in 1913. And 
there's an American chairwoman, and the American chairwoman uh, reads out a message of support to the women of Persia because Persian women have been unable to attend this meeting. But she turns her criticism onto Western powers or European powers, that's to say the Russians and the British, because, as she views it, the Russians and the British have prevented uh, a sort of endogenous change in Persian politics because their imperial politics, basically the division of, of Persia into spheres of influence, of Persia-Iran into spheres of influence, has prevented political reform within Persia. And therefore, actually, Western powers have prevented the emancipation, the relative emancipation from a very low base, obviously, of women in, in Persia. And that struck me as, I find, I find that very, very, very striking. So what sense do we get that people in the period um, believed there to be just this continual kind of progress of um, things getting better across the world? Well, I think that's very much the, the legacy of the 19th century, um, is that you know, things get better from year to year. And, of course, things had got better from year to year. I mean, it's important to remember that by, you know, by 1913, there's been a very, very long period in Europe of progress, if you like. There's been a, a very long period of increasing wealth. There have been um, uh, you know, slowdowns here and there. Um, there have been financial crises, certainly. There have been economic crises. But broadly speaking, people have got wealthier from year to year. And also there's been a, a period of, of tremendous peace. Um, yes, there's been war in the Crimea. Yes, in 1913, there's war in the Balkans. Um, but there hasn't been a big, big European war um, you know, since the Napoleonic Wars. Um, and so pe pe people very much buy into this idea that the world is becoming more inter interconnected, the world is becoming more global, um, that a kind of world civilization is, is arising from that. Now, of course, there are people who worry about war um, and the forms that war might take. Ivan um, Bloch writes about um, how a future war in Europe will be more destructive than any, any previous war. Um, Norman, Norman Angel, um, who's often cited as, as having said that war was impossible, in fact, he doesn't actually say war was impossible. He writes this book, The Great Illusion, and goes, goes to speak to many audience about it in, in, in Britain and abroad. Um, he's not saying that war is impossible. He's saying that, that war is unprofitable. And, of course, at this time, we also have... It's also the age of the peace movements. Um, but, of course, the peace movements arise out of a fear of war as well. So, there, you know, there, there, there are, of course... Um, fears of war. But I think for a lot of people in, in 1913, they could say, well, you know, we've been living in this with the threat of war um, for some years now. And it, it hasn't happened. And Eric Hobsbawm has a, has a great line on this. He, he says sort of when it actually happened in 1914, when war actually broke out, on the one hand, war had been ever present as an idea for years. But no one actually thought it would really happen. And then, of course, yeah, it does. Yeah. So do you think people were optimistic um, about the future and about society in 1913 in a way that we're not now? Well, I think it's very, very hard to say that an entire generation was optimistic then and we're not optimistic at all now. But I think, that, I think there is something in the belief of rational human beings, in the belief in the advances of, of science, that... that, that you know, that 
that the world will get better from year to year. I think, yes, I do think that there was a, there was a stronger belief in that, rightly or wrongly. Uh, I think there was a stronger belief in that then, perhaps, than there is now. I mean, this was we're beginning to get we're beginning to to, to shade into a world of of relativity at the beginning of the 20th century. Um, but there are still lots of absolutes um, which people believe in. You know, God, for most people, uh, is an absolute which people believe in. Um, perhaps paradoxically, the advance of science is also an absolute which many people believe in. Um, so I think there is, and there's justification for there to be, a sense of confidence about moving towards the, the sunlit uplands of the future. Um, we talked there about how uh, war had been a present threat for a while. Do you think that the average person would have been surprised by the outbreak of war? You know, I mean, I mean, I mean, obviously, the, the, the outbreak of war came after a period of a period of rising tension. But you know, even in and Christopher Clark deals with this extremely well in his book, The Sleepwalkers. Um, you know, amongst policymakers, a a sense of if not now when, a sense of being impelled by impersonal movements, the the idea that individual decision-makers actually aren't in control of events, um, that, you know, that the weather is being made by others, that they have to move because otherwise someone else will move. I think amongst policymakers, you get this, this growing momentum towards war, which, which um, Chris Clark describes so well in his book. Um, but amongst people, I would come back to this idea that, look, we've seen it before. You know, we've had crises in the Balkans. We've had the Agadir crisis. Um, people have been talking about war for years. Will it really happen? I mean, will a, a gunshot in Sarajevo really cause a, a, a European or even a global war to break out? And if it does, and this is crucial, um, what will that war look like? Um, I said that you know, even Bloch and others had, had suggested that if war did break out, it would be a very, very different kind of war. It wouldn't be a war of movement, necessarily. It would be hugely destructive. It would be a, a total war. Um, but this is a generation, at least in Europe, schooled on short, sharp colonial wars. Uh, and any war that broke out, although, of course, a European war would be different from a colonial war, I think there was the idea that it would be a short, sharp, glorious shock. Mm, OK. So there was no sense that people thought they were entering a massive period of conflict? No, I don't think... No, I, I, I don't think anyone could have predicted in 1913 that, A, the First World War, some people thought the war would be very nasty, but that the war would actually conclude with the destruction of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, the collapse of the Russian Empire, um, the collapse of the German Empire, um, that it would usher in 20 years of... only 20 years of peace, which would lead to a still more uh, dramatic war 20 years down the line, the Second World War. The notion that... Globalization would be thrown into reverse, as it was by the First World War. That global integration, that flows of migration, would stop uh, as a result of war and would stop for for a long time. Um, that the gold standard would collapse within a matter of years. Uh, you know, I, I think that the one in the times that you live in, and I think that's true now as well. You sort of you tend to believe that the basic direction. Of human history is something that can't really change. Um, you know, maybe it can go a little bit, you know, further one way, or you know, go a little bit, you know, north northeast or north northwest. But basically, it's going in a particular direction. And I think what the First World War does is it it 
you know, the compass is thrown away. The compass of world history is thrown away. Were there any things that particularly surprised you during the course of your research? Well, I guess I was struck in, in looking at China. Um, I was struck by how close uh, China came to having a democratic parliamentary government in 1913, at, at least in the form of it. Uh, I think people could always say, well, um, you know, the history of, of, um, of uh, imperial politics in China was always bound to reassert itself at some time or another. Um, but, you know, you do have elections in China. You do have the election of a parliament. You do have a democratically elected leader who, on the point of going to the opening of parliament, so Song Jiren, uh, is assassinated in Shanghai Station. Uh, and that seemed to me to be a tremendous inflection point in global history, which really, in the West, we probably don't remember. I think we don't remember. And that's actually very relevant for now because, whether we like it or not, the world is moving to a space where actually Europeans and Britons and Westerners will no longer make the weather. We will no longer dictate what happens in the world so much. And un an understanding, therefore, of the histories of other countries is tremendously important. And for the Chinese, this period, the early 20th century and, of course, the 19th century, so the Opium Wars, um, uh, the concessions, um, Western tutelage in many places over, uh, over China, and the fragmentation of China, this is a period of history which is very, very important to Chinese policymakers now. Uh, and they worry about a return to the chaos and disorder of China in the, in, in the 19th century. And, of course, the... Um, you know, the tremendous shock uh, of the Boxer Rebellion. And, you know, it, I came across photographs of US Marines in the Forbidden City in Peking in 1901. And it's hard to, it, it's hard to overestimate the cultural shock that that must have represented and the shame that that represented. Uh, and of course, Chinese policymakers, communist Chinese policymakers, remember this imperial history in a way that the victors of that history, if you like, Europeans and Americans, they tend to forget. You say in the book um, that there are striking and unsettling parallels between 1913 and today. Um, what do you think some of those kind of major parallels are? I mean, one, one comparison which is often made is in 1913 you have a global hegemon, the United Kingdom, which is in relative decline. You have Germany, a rising power. Uh, and there are parallels perhaps between... Britain in 1913, the United States in 2013, Germany in 1913, uh, and China in 2013. Um, and I think you can push those a little bit. They're interesting. Um, but what I think is more compelling to me is the idea that you have a global system um, which functions more or less in 1913, function, whether it's right or wrong, um, you know, obviously it functions according to the rules of empire and to the rules of race, uh, and, but it does what it does. Um, and it's beginning to fray, but it's not necessarily on the point of collapse, or it's not believed to be on the point of collapse. And in 2013, you know, we've been living in the afterglow of Allied success, if you like, in the Second World War, you know, the, 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 the world that was built after the Second World War, the Bretton, Bretton Woods world, essentially still a European or, or Atlanticist world. And if one looks forward, 
one wonders how long that structure of global order can really continue. Uh, and in that uncertainty, I think there's room for miscalculation. And I, I do find that, I find that, find that worrying. Will globalization continue along the same path that it has for the last uh, 60 years? Or are we moving towards um, you know, a fragmentation? And I think there are lots of... Um, I heard somebody the other day talk about Sarajevo moments. Um, and one can imagine a few Sarajevo moments around the world. I mean, just in the last couple of months, I mean, you can see what's happening in the North Korea, sorry, in the Korean Peninsula. Um, uh, look at what's happening in the South China Sea or the East China Sea, um, Iran, Syria. You can see the possibility of small events leading to much bigger events, whether by design or more probably by miscalculation. Because the sort of the, the, the structure of global politics is, is up for grabs more now than it was 20 years ago. 20 years ago, we thought we lived in a unipolar moment. The United States had won and, you know, end of history, game over. And people don't really believe that now. So it's a time of great, now I believe, is a time of great uncertainty, therefore great risk. Also an opportunity to reshape the world and to get it right. Um, and I think history is very important to that. Because if you don't understand the past, if you don't understand the contingency of history, if you don't have the modesty, I guess, to understand that things sometimes turn out the way we don't expect them to, um, if you don't understand that, then you, you're not going to get it right. That was Charles Emerson in conversation with Matt Elton. 1913, The World Before the Great War, is out now, published by Bodley Head. And that's almost all for this week. Do get in touch with your views on podcast at historyextra.com and we'll do our best to read out some of your messages in future episodes. You can also get in touch with us on social media. On Twitter, we're at History Extra and you can find us at facebook.com forward slash History Extra as well. And don't forget to check out our website, historyextra.com, where you'll find history quizzes, galleries, reviews and more. Next time we'll be paying a visit to a little-known monument in Wiltshire called Stonehenge. Do join us for that. The History Extra Weekly podcast is recorded in Bristol and produced by Jack Fletcher. <laughs>